Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. So normally, uh, I would have you go ahead and probably open your Bibles, but I actually don't want you to open them yet. If you've already opened it, close them or put your finger there. So uh, we're continuing our series, Blueprint, a Holistic Vision of the Church. Uh, This is Paul's letter to Timothy. And so I actually have a pop quiz for us this morning. Don't be nervous. If you're like me, I wasn't the best of students. I was a mediocre student, I should say. And so um, I didn't I didn't like pop quizzes because I knew that, man, I'm, I got test anxiety. But don't worry, there's no really, uh, you're not going to fail, right? I'm going to use grace with you. But pop quiz this morning, I'm going to put a verse on the screen. Go ahead to the next slide, please. All right, so I want us to read this. Let me move my phone in here. I want us to read this out loud together. When we get to here, we're just going to say blank. Okay, so you guys ready? You gonna read with me? Yeah. All right. The saying is trustworthy and it deserves a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect blank as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Now, if you looked ahead, or you knew that this was coming, as my family probably did, because they hear me practicing on Saturdays, do not say what you think that blank should be, but any any answers, what should that blank be? Just say it out loud. Love. Okay, love. Anyone else? Sorry, I blocked it again. Life. Life. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Mercy. What was that? Mercy. Mercy. One more. Eternal love. Eternal love. Okay, so we've got eternal love, life, love, mercy. Uh, I'm surprised no one said faithfulness. Mm. No one said no one said grace. And while all of those answers, or most of those answers are likely right, many of them are right theologically, right? Faithfulness of God, love of God, mercy of God, eternal love of God. That is not actually what goes in this blank. And so Go ahead now and open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. If you're new to the, to the Bible, 1 Timothy is in the New Testament. About halfway through. So find the book of Matthew, and then if you get to Revelation, you're too far, somewhere in the middle of those. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're picking up in verse, uh, we're looking at 15, 16, actually start. And so when someone, when someone finds the word that belongs there, just shout it out. Patience. Okay? Patience. There it is. So let's read this again. Go to the next slide, please. We're going to read it out loud one more time. All right, ready? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of the full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I don't know about you, but I am grateful for the patience of God in my life. 
If you're here or you're tuning in or you're listening to this on a podcast later and you are not yet a Christian, I want to say you're welcome. You're welcome in our midst. And here's the good news. Anytime you're at a church and you're like, I'm not so sure about this, you're surrounded by people who were also once former Christians. Like that's a category that we all had, right? We were all probably born in different places and born on different days, but there's one category we all have that if we're in Christ, at one point in life, we were not in Christ. So this letter that we're studying is written by the Apostle Paul to uh, Timothy. And Paul, if you know much about his life, he was the least likely of converts. And if you study the life of Jesus and his message, what we see is he displaces perfect patience time and time again. A couple of just, just examples here. He takes the least likely of people. He causes them to turn, kind of stop what they're doing, to turn, to repent, and to follow him. Jesus calls blue-collar fishermen and makes them apostles. I mean, he's got this ragtag group of, of, of individuals who are, once again, fishermen, kind of blue-collar workers. And that's who he says, I'm going to build my church upon these people. I'm going to send these people out to, to start uh, the church. Jesus took Zacchaeus, a corrupt tax collector, and he made him a generous man. Jesus took a demon-possessed woman, and he made her a disciple. Jesus took the most reluctant and former atheist, C.S. Lewis, and I mean, how many of you read Mere Christianity, or how many of you have you know, heard of that book, transformed his life? Even this morning, someone reminded me, you know, I haven't verified if he's really living this way. It's easy for famous people to say, oh, I'm a Christian, and you know, praise God, and they win the war, but apparently Alice Cooper, the shock rock um, uh, artist, rock star, went from Whatever life he was living, I know alcoholism was a big part of that, to saying, without Jesus, I would, would still be an alcoholic. And if you're a Christian, then Jesus took you from whatever life you live. Right? This summer we went to, uh, we had stories or testimonies in the park on Wednesday nights, and that was part of why we did that. So we could hear, like, man, we were all in this, this former state, but, but God worked in our lives and was patient with us. He was patient with me. He worked in a way to bring me to himself, to be able to follow him. And here's the good news with that. I love these, these couple of verses why I wanted to start with them this morning. Is that God's perfect patience is available to those who have yet to follow Jesus. So think right now. Think about your co-workers. Think about your friends. Think about your family. Think about your neighbors. Just people that, that you interact with on a daily basis. Who do not yet follow Jesus. I say do not yet because our hope is that they will. And part of the, the interaction we have with them is that God may be using you in their life to help bring them to that point. But that God is still patient with them, just as he is patient with you. And so our big idea this morning is as we embrace the gospel, we should be filled with praise and celebration, and that we should fight for the faith. It's, kind of, it's going to be interesting, because remember last week, um, the title of your, your Bible probably said, Warning Against False Teachers. As we kind of talk about prioritizing the gospel above all. Well, it's like Paul finishes that thought, and it's almost like he takes a rabbit trail, or in the midst, he's just kind of reflecting on God's goodness in his own life, because what he does at first, in the first chunk that we're going to look at, is he basically has his own little private doxology, like a little praise and worship service, where he's just like praising God and thanking him. And then at the end of today's text, we get to the last couple of verses, and it's like he remembers, like, oh yeah, I had another, I was going with something here, and he returns to this idea that um, we've been warning against false teachers, and he's going to kind of explain that to us a little bit. And so number one this morning is we must celebrate the gospel. Verses 12 through 17. 
says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul tells us a very key point here. He says, Jesus, or Christ Jesus came into the world. We're like, yeah, hello, we know that. But Christ Jesus came into the world. It talks about the, the incarnation there, that, that Jesus Christ came in, that God came in flesh through Jesus. But why did Jesus come? He tells us in this passage, why does he come? Because Jesus Christ came to live the life that we could not live. How many of you tried living life on your own? How many of you have tried to get your act together? How's that going for you? Right? You got some thumbs down, some kind of smirks, some laughs, some kind of like, you know, maybe just kind of breathe out the exhaustion. So Jesus Christ came to live life that we could not live. Thank you, Jesus. He also came to die in the death that we deserve to die. Right? So it's like, okay, there's the, there's, there's the bad news part. But they also came to rise in victory over the enemies that we could not conquer, namely sin and death. And so do you see what Paul is doing here? He's contrasting. Last week he's focused on, hey, there's be, be, be mindful. There's false teachers. We're going to come talk about myths and, and gene, or, uh, soothsayers and different things. And he gave us some kind of specific areas. He's like, watch out. This is what they're going to come doing. So he's contrasting this with the truth of why Jesus came. So he's now saying, look, but here's who came and here's why Jesus came into the world. So he's contracting Jesus' truth with the myths and speculations of the false teachers. And he's showing us that Jesus came. And this is an undeniable truth. And as you study, as you understand who the Apostle Paul was and is, that makes sense. And we're going to unpack that a little bit in his life as well. And so we established that Jesus came into the world, it tells us in this verse, to save sinners. But what sinners? All sinners. To embrace the gospel message fully. This is why Paul enlists himself. Paul's not pointing at you guys and going, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And he's, he's, he's not doing this. Paul's saying, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And I'm the foremost. I'm the biggest of all sinners. He recognized. I mean, this is Paul going like, if he was able to save me, Paul, then nobody is outside the scope of salvation of Jesus. Because there's no way that I would have been Safe. I mean, Paul was anti-Christian. Paul was against the church. If you know much about Paul, he was previously known as Saul. And he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He had what I call a radical encounter. Because he was active, like, in the moment, living a life that was contrary to Jesus. Like, he wanted to, he only wasn't against Christians and Jesus. He was trying to destroy the church. 
He was trying to get rid of the memory of Jesus. Okay? So, like, it, it wasn't, he was totally against it. In fact, he was on his way to Damascus to kill Christians when he met Christ. Imagine that's your testimony. That's your story, right? So how did you meet Jesus? Well, I was sitting in a church, right? All testimonies are important, but I was sitting in a church service, and I heard the gospel proclaim, and I gave a lot to Christ. Or, you know, I was I was up one night, and I was like, I'm done drinking, and I just cried to God. Like, all those are great, but like, I don't know anyone else. It's like, I was on my way to kill Christians <coughs> and met Christ himself and became a Christian. If all say, look, if, if, if Jesus can save me, he can save you. In, in Acts 9, you don't have to turn there and just drive down to a little later. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when Saul inquired, he says, who are you, Lord? He was told quite plainly, he says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting Soon after, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized, and then he came known as Paul. Here's what I think we often think of as the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Right? He wrote this letter we're studying today. So I think most of us, as we're in church, and if you're new to church, you're like, oh, Paul. And we think of Paul as some kind of uh, church kid who deconstructed as he got older. We imagine Paul grew up from the time he was little, went through BBS and Sunday school and attended church, and then he got like high school, college age, and deconstructed and walked away, and then somehow he was like the prodigal son comes with that. That is not Paul's story. Paul was a ruthless enemy of the church. One pastor I looked at, he, he said Paul was more like Hitler than the church kid, because he was actively trying to get rid of a certain sect of people who were identifying themselves with Jesus. Look at verse 13 here. Paul says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I love those phrases. But God, in His grace, extended mercy but God, in his grace, extended mercy. I mean, Paul's just like overjoyed. It's actually going to tell us. It tells us right there. It says he overflowed with grace. Because Paul goes, I didn't deserve this. I was completely contrary to anything that's like this. Now, there's several reasons that people in our lives may still not believe this message. People in our city may not believe this. In fact, I would say the majority of our city do not believe this message. Based on what study shows. And there's a few reasons why. And, and you can think about your own story and where you were at at one point in time. So we have what I call the atheistic unbeliever. And for those, I challenge them to consider that they have as much faith as non atheists. Right? The, the difference is that Christians have a faith in someone. Our faith is in Jesus. But if someone's truly an atheist, I'm like, you have faith, you just have faith in supposedly nothing. So I, I remember telling some atheist friends, and they were like, oh, I never thought about that. And I wasn't trying to pull one on them, but they were just like, wow, I, I guess you're right, I do have faith. It's just an absolutely no. We have the agnostic unbeliever. They just don't know if it's possible to know. And I think what this passage tells us is we are to patiently walk with those people. Because God was patient with us, and we'll be patient with them. We have the humble unbeliever. If that's you, then just believe and follow 
And I think we have a lot in our city who fall into this category. A lot of people we care about, the ignorant unbeliever. They're like Paul. They just they just don't know or understand. There's a lot of people in our city. They just haven't, what I call, clearly heard the gospel message of God's grace and love that's available for them. They've heard bits and pieces, right? There's kind of this cultural idea, like, even in the U.S., even in a city like Portland, there's like, there's this idea of this Jesus character, and we know there's something about a cross, and, and, and maybe the message, they've been kind of sprinkled with bits and pieces of some of the truth, and some of these false messages that Paul's warning us about have also come in. And so I think there's a lot of people, that's what, that's what my heart is for. I don't want them to clearly hear the gospel message. And so there's kind of this just ignorant unbeliever. And this is why we're to be patient with those around us, because sometimes it takes a long time for the light bulb to turn on. Sometimes it takes a long time for it to actually click. Right? There's been people who have been in church, right? Just because you're in church doesn't make you a Christian. That's why sometimes you're like, man, is he preaching or you? It's like, I don't know. That there's been people who have been in church for decades, and they maybe even hear it because they heard that it, one day it finally clicks. Because this is the work of God, and our prayer is for those in their unbelief that God will work through. Paul calls this overflowing grace. That is grace upon grace upon grace. And Paul shows us in his own life that the grace of God is unconditional. What does he mean by that? That there was nothing inside of him, Paul, that drew him closer to God. Once again, he was opposed to Jesus and this, this, this thing called Christianity. So there was no way that there was anything inside of himself. And so where did Paul's salvation originate? You can say it. Where does Paul's salvation originate? In Christ. In Christ and Christ alone. The same is true for you and true for me. That Christ is the one, right? So our prayer for those people that we care about in our lives is that the Spirit of God is stirring something in them. Because we can't convince people, right? We can give the best illustrations, and we could we could whiteboard and give them slideshows and, and tell all these things. But apart from the Spirit of God moving and working in their life, it's not going to convince them. And so Paul's reminding us that God's grace is unconditional, and that it was that my salvation is a work of God from the beginning to the end. And I'm not a single one of you in here to identify as Christian. We're saved based on anything within yourself. I know we all have to think that we're pretty good people, right? Like, no, I'm pretty good. You know, I, I stole when I was five, and I don't think I stole one again, unless you count the cookies from, you know, the pantry, and then I see those sometimes. And I don't really lie that often unless I get ordered by a cop, and then I try to, like, sort of lie, tell a white lie. Um, you know, I don't really cheat often, but when I was taking Greek in seminary and I was really struggling, I may have looked over to the pastor's paper next to me because I wasn't a pastor yet. I'm just a seminary studying to be a pastor. There's nothing inside of us that basically God's like, man, like, you've got it, right? We're only saved by kind of God's sovereign and unconditional grace. That's what calls us to pray. It's like we should join Paul and be like, man, that's so true. In my own life, regardless if you came to Christ as a, a young child or as an adult, that going, man, God's grace was available to me, it's available to others as well. And so if you think you're beyond the mercy of God, hear this. God chose to take the chief persecutor of the church. Well, see, I don't think we can fathom it, because we're just so used to hearing Paul quoted all the time. Took the chief persecutor of the church, and he made him the chief missionary of the church. To show that God is patient, God loves, and he calls sinners to believe in him for eternal life. So remember this. No matter who you are, 
or what you've done. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, which is all of us. He made this, mess, this, this message of salvation available to every single one of us. And I think part of our role as we proclaim this message, this good news to the city around us, is I think a lot of times people hear this and they, they think that we are calling them to a religion, right? a set of practices. Right? And so I think what we have to be clear in saying is that, well, first and foremost, we're calling you to Jesus. And then Jesus calls you to a way of life. Jesus calls you to come as you are, and then he simply calls you to be with him, become like him, and do as he did. And so if you say, well, what does this look like in my practical life? Like, I've identified myself with Christ. Well, how do I live this out? I think it starts with spending time intentionally with those who don't yet believe. I would say, I would say, I would say pre, pre-believers rather than unbelievers. Because we were all in that category at one time. And intentionally spend time with these people. Every single week at the end of our gathering, I know it sounds different depending on who's doing our, 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 our sending off, but what, what do we say at the end? Go be the church. Go be the church. Oh, yeah. Stir each other on. Stir each other on, go be the church. We do that because what we're doing is like a, what I call missionary commission. Whether you've been to missionary training school, whether you've been to seminary, none of that really matters. Like once you're in Christ, you you are a a representative, an ambassador, someone said, a missionary. And so that's why we do that. That we get to, we're kind of saying, hey, like the majority of our week is not live with each other. It's at work and where we live and all the other things. And that so each week it's not just lip service. It's a missionary commission that we're saying, go and now be the church. Go and be ambassadors of this message to the city where we have been called. God's patience in Paul's life and ours leads to God's praise. Listen to what Paul says in verse 17 as he concludes this first part of this set of verses. It says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Not there yet. Amen. This is Paul's next doxology. He's telling us several things here. He says, there's one king. All glory and honor belongs to that king forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul starts off, this is kind of the heart of this whole message, that he starts off with praising God for his salvation. It's available to all people. Now it kind of takes an interesting turn, because if you've been tracking with this, once again, it's like all of a sudden Paul takes a, a, a turn or a rabbit trail as all people who belong to speaking new at times. And you're kind of like, this is weird. He's like talking about this, praising God for salvation. And now he takes this, this turn kind of towards where we were last week, talking about false teachers. And so he has one final exhortation in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. So now, number 2, we must fight for the gospel. Let's look at verses 18 So this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among, her, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's some strong language. Let's unpack that a little bit. First, we must fight for the gospel in our lives. We kind of looked at this last week when Cedric was warning us about sticking something into the socket. 
Right? And so we must fight for the gospel in our lives. This represents the same of the in Greek refers to a good conscience. See, the false teachers are rejecting their, their, their conscience. They're plowing ahead in their sin and their ignorance. But brothers and sisters, I think we forget this, especially in the American church. And I say that because I've traveled broadly enough. But I feel like they're a little more mindful, at least the countries I've been in. And here, we forget this, that we are in a battle. We're in a spiritual war. It's always, it's always fascinating to me, interesting, and not picking on any of these things, but like Halloween's coming up, right, this time of year, and, and we, we love different sci-fi movies, and, and wizardry, and different games, and all, you know, all this stuff, and we'll, we'll play with all those things, and then when it comes to the idea of spiritual warfare, we're like, that's not real. And I'm not, I'm not picking on any of those things, but it's like, we love the idea in America, even in the church, about this, like, all this fantasy stuff, and then we're like, wait a minute. But there's actually a war that we're in. We're at war in our lives. We're at war in our marriages. If, you, if, you're not, if you're not married, you may not know that. But marriage is wonderful, but it's hard. Amen? Amen. Married people? <laughs> we're at war in our families. Right? Have you tried to raise a kid in an age with like technology? It changes the whole game. We used to get bored. <laughs> right? Now, I had a TV in my room when I was like 12 years old. But guess what? We didn't have cable. Yeah. I did my best to like, hit it and put that rabbit ears up and get like a couple of channels. I moved out, my parents had cable. Thanks for all of that. They were protecting me. But we're at war in our lives. And so this is applicable to all of us, whether you're a stay at home parent, whether you're a teenager at school, whether you're a college student, whether you're a person waiting tables or a barista, whether you're a businessman or woman, whether you're in between. Work. This is relevant to every single one. Is that we are at war, and that's what Paul is telling us here. We have to be mindful. Ephesians uh, six twelve reminds us of this. It says spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms are active. Did you hear that? Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms are active, and they are warring against your soul. I think this is one thing we, we don't talk about often enough in the church. Typically, I allow the text to drive it, so that's why we're not like week in and week out. But there's some things that I'm, I'm talking about the church broadly, so I'm not speaking on sort of the church broadly, that I see that we just have kind of like slowly drifted away and allowed to kind of come into our midst. And we're just kind of like playing with the devil's territory, is what I'll call it. And we think, oh, it's no big deal. But then we read this, we're like, spiritual forces, the heaven realms are active, and they are warring against your soul. And then sometimes what happens is this presently is happening, and we go, why is this happening in my life? Why is this taking place? Why, why? And we blame God, and the reality is it's the spiritual forces of evil warring against us in our life. Which brings it back to why we need to stick with the church and be in the church. Right? I think sometimes what we need to do, if I'm on myself here, I'm picking on myself. I'm not leaving with you, I'm leaving myself. Sometimes we just need to take a step back and go, how have I been living my life? Not in a legalistic way, but what have I allowed into my life that may be the cause of this, the root of this, instead of me blaming God? And this looks different for all of us. But do not be mistaken, every single one of us is in a spiritual battle. Here's the reality. All of life is spiritual. I just I read two books last week just reminded me of this. That all of life is spiritual. We are all spiritual beings. Our interns in the 
summer they come here and say, Matt, you told us this was one of the least religious cities in the country. Yep, it is. Matt, you told us one of the most atheistic cities in the country. Yep, it is. Everyone meet and they talk to they seem spiritual. Oh, I never said it wasn't a spiritual place. Mm -hmm. Portland's very spiritual. The reality is every single one of us, whether you recognize or not, you are a spiritual being. And you're being shaped by someone or something. And so this looks different for all of us. We're all in a war, whether you recognize or not. And so Paul's saying, fight the good fight. Stand strong among the challenges, which is why we need that firm foundation, and why we also need one another. He says, keep faith in a good conscience. Now Paul uses this phrase here. He says, shipwreck of their faith. He says, some of them is shipwreck of their faith. Now this is most likely referring to false teachers. Well, remember, that's what he was warning us about last week. Who have come into the midst, they've claimed to be true Christ followers, but now they've fallen away from their initial profession, thereby showing that they were never truly converted. Now, let me be careful and cautious how I say this. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of theological belief, stance, but the short of it is once saved, always saved. And I convictionally and firmly believe that based on Scripture. Once you're saved, you are always saved. But that caveat is if you are actually saved, if you are truly giving your life over to Christ. And I think John, 1 John 2.19, you can write this down. I don't have a slide for it. It somberly reminds us of this. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that I might become, that I might become plain that they all are not of us. See, John's readers of 1 John 2.19, he had seen people recently go out from them. Though outwardly it seemed like they belonged to the church, their departure revealed they were not truly of them. Like I came across this passage, I don't know if I this in a couple of messages, maybe a few months ago, and it's, it's kind of like something clicked in. It's a, it's a very, it's kind of a warning here, but also as I've seen people kind of dip in the church and then make professions and then dip out. I was texting with a guy last night, so many people I knew who one time claimed Jesus who won't want anything to do with him now. And that their departure is that they did not have a genuine faith. Because if they had been of us, they would have not left. This also is applied to those who are truly saved will never abandon Christ. Because of Christ's grace. And so first we must fight for the gospel in our own lives. And we do that not only individually, we do that together. Right? This is where part of that transparency comes in. Our men's tables and our women's tables. Like This is where we're like, in time, build the trust and just get up front with each other. And maybe it's not there, but we need to have at least two or three people in our lives you can be completely honest with. Every single thing. Hey, I'm struggling with this. Hey, I just had this thought. Hey, I want to do this. Hey, I did do this. And they look at you and say, I love you. I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. That they're in the fight with you. Doesn't mean they're condoning. You know, also, I'm not giving you specifics here. They're saying, I'm with you. I'm pulling you up out of there. I'm not letting you slip that way. I'm not letting you slip and drift away. And then second, we fight for the gospel in our churches. Paul gets very specific here. And he does what we're told in our culture never to do. He calls out two people by name. These are like the pastors or teachers at this time. It's just Hermanus and Alexander. Now Paul says essentially, if you want to teach Satan's doctrine, 
And it says right here, whom I have handed over to Satan. So it's saying, if you want to teach Satan's doctrine, then go hang out with Satan. And so he says they were put out from the church. We don't see this practice a whole lot these days. Uh, this is also referred to sometimes as excommunication, or some will call it church discipline. Um, if you're wondering, the soldier believe in this? We actually do. Have we practiced this? Not, not in the sense this way, but if we need to get to a place where we practice it, I hope that we would. I hope that we as a body would go like, hey, Matt, I don't know if you made attention to this, but this stranger came in our midst and seemed fine and dandy, but now this seems really contrary to what we believe and what we teach, and that we have to go and follow through that. And so I know this sounds maybe harsh to some, but remember what's at stake. Leading people, leading others astray from the gospel of Jesus. I'm going to give us some examples. Am I allowed to do that? Mormons. Some of what they believe, morally, our life's probably pretty similar. Most of us be pretty comfortable with, with around them. But Mormons are not Christians. That is a cult. That is a false, a false thing. Jehovah's Witnesses, right? I'll commend them. They're on every corner. All over Portland, but Vancouver for sure. It must be safe from Vancouver. So I'm, back over there, I'm serious. On the riverfront, I pass. I kid you not, five different little stands. They're right? They're super nice, respectful. They're all over. So they post the shame as far as just trying to get their message out there. And I've noticed both those groups are trying to make it sound more and more similar, but it's not the same. They're trying to make it like, oh, they are. Nope, it's not the same. And we, we need to call that out in a loving way, right? If you know Mormon, you know Jonas Lewis, you can love them. And you can point them to Jesus. Um, here's another one that's maybe even more prevalent. Progressivism. Right? We can find that all different ways. So just take it to the umpteenth degree. And that is that is something that, that's a, a, a false message. Christian nationalism. Right? Or elections coming up again next year. Oh God help us. Holy Spirit. <laughs> that's another message. It's like, well, it sounds so there's some similar, similar components there. But I think that's the reason that, that many people in our city are like, I don't want to meet with it. And so forth. And so there's these different messages. This is just the ones I see identified easily in our culture. And like, that's what's at stake. Leading people astray from the gospel. But know this. Even if Paul's like saying, I'm handing over the same, I'm excommunicating from the church. This is what you ought to do. Remember, he's talking to Timothy. He's talking to a young pastor here. This is like my pastor that I grew up under who's 72 years old calling me up and saying, hey, and let's just say there was a situation. He'd be like, hey, I know you're a young pastor. Man, you got to do this. And I'm like, oh, I, don't, I, like, I don't like to be liked. I don't like people. I don't like, i got to tell this guy to get out of here. And so he's writing this letter saying, you need to do this, but know this. There's still hope for these people. God's patience, as we talked about at the beginning, is still available to those that he is actually excommunicating from the church. So even false teachers... There's still hope for them because of God's perfect patience that they too can still be saved. See, church discipline, as it sometimes is called, is motivated by love. And the hope is the one who's disciplined that they will return back to the Lord. Let's just take this on a smaller scale, not quite church discipline, but accountability. Here's the reality. At least initially, most none of us, I would almost say, like to be held accountable. None of us like to be told, hey, you're, what you're doing is not right. The way you're living your life is not right. That decision you made, you kind of messed up over there. Right? It's hard to be on the receiving end of that. But the reason that we do that with one another is because we're helping to return back. Be reminded. Right? Not for shame, not for guilt, but to be reminded of returning to Jesus. 
And so Paul is essentially telling Timothy this. He says, you and the church must take severe measures. I'm not going to get as loud and animated because my wife will give me a look if I do that. But, you know, Cedric last week talked about how loud he got with his son when he was about to put his, his fork or whatever it was into the outlet. But Paul is telling us that, that we should take severe measures at certain times in order to fight for the gospel. And what he's telling us is he's saying, take them. Take the severe measures. Do whatever is needed in order to remain pure into the gospel. And so Paul says, Timothy, you need to do this. But he also is admonishing Timothy to be a pastor. You see, see a pastor is more than a Bible teacher. Right? There's some phenomenal Bible teachers I can recommend. But some of them are pastors. And a pastor is called to protect their flock, specifically from wolves. So that, that is, as Cedric kept highlighting last that, that, that's one of my important jobs, their roles, is to help protect you from, from wolves and false things in your life. So that could be directly in the church, or that could be out in in the city, right? And so if you come to me like, hey, I was just talking with this JW down in Vancouver, and we're going to start this study together, I'm going to be like, whoa, 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 you're going to do what? Now, let's talk about this, right? Paul's telling Timothy, and he's telling me, I've got a role of responsibility to do this. So uh, part of our role is to guard against false teaching. Once again, in our culture, progressivism. The other is individualism. You're not meant to do life alone. There is no Lone Ranger Christianity. You want to see a miserable Christian? It's those who are Lone Ranger Christianity. Those are the ones that are the most miserable. I'm going to guide you into communion. Guide you into the way of Jesus. One final example. Young churches. We're, we're a young church. And young churches are desperate for leadership. They are let it out. And so this is what can happen. And this has actually happened one time at Sojourn. None of you were here. So it doesn't matter if you don't know what I'm talking about. And this person came and said, I want to teach. And I was like, oh, okay. Let's talk about this. Now, I'm not saying they were a false teacher, but they weren't ready. Let's just say that. And I had other people backing up on this. And one of the quickest ways to derail a church is to allow someone to come in for me quickly to go, like, man, I need some other leaders. Like, now, I think I don't have a lot of guest speakers recently, but I don't just let you know just anyone come in and teach. People I trust, people I feel like I've got some rapport with. But this is one of the quickest ways for a church to get derailed and go off on something something else on a side tangent. And so this is why we're very, very careful at Sojourn, because wolves will come in and they're really hard to spot. They're really cute and cuddly. If I brought a little wolf pup in here this morning, we would all be like, oh, this is so cute. And we all be wanting to pet its head, and it's like gnawing on us because it doesn't really fiercely bite us yet. And, we would spend time around this little wolf pup. And it would distract the whole gathering. We would leave and go, man, how was, how was Sojourn's cabin this week? Man, this cutest little wolf pup was there. And I got to pet him and hold him and he licked my face. And it was just great. There it is. It came around it, so we didn't even recognize part of the spot. And so Paul basically says we must boot them out of the church. We take those cute little wolf pups and we take them to Forest Park and we leave them. <laughs> We're not to tolerate them. This false teaching destroys people. We don't hate the teacher, but we hate what they represent. We hate the messages that they're trying to give us. But Paul says, once again, there's still patience for them. There's still patience they can come to work. And so hold on to it and choose the gospel above all, because it's the one uniting factor of the church. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as we get ready to finish, there's really only two kinds of teaching. There's true teaching, and there's false teaching. And we all believe one or the other. 
horribly kind of mixed in the two. And if you believe, remember the lemonade analogy last week? That 1%? Well, now, now it's false. So we either believe false teaching or believe true teaching. And the question is, which one do you believe? Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.